This is Ryan Dacey, your host for the new podcast series live from AmericanMusical.com in sunny New Jersey. In this premiere episode, we sat down with legendary guitar player John Jorgensen for a chat about gear and his history. We recorded this in conjunction with our new series, The Guitarist, that stars John and gives you some behind-the-scenes access to John hanging with some of his friends, like Brad Paisley and Joe Bonamassa. The first episode will be released on January 7th, 2020. During each podcast, we will feature different podcasting gear to give you examples of what the gear we sell sounds like. This week, we are using Shure SM7B mics into a Rode Rodecaster Pro mixer. We are using Samson desk mount boom arms. Woo! Thank you. Applause. you and, an applause it, button on that thing? Yeah, it actually it. is sunny, you know? It, it, it is. Well, it was until we yeah. lost that extra hour. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah now we it's, had to it's hear last week. out there now. It's but, a bummer. But that worked out well. Because I was playing it up way, way north in Maine oh. on Saturday night. Where? Uh, in Brownfield at the Stone Mountain Art Center. Man, that's out. That's up there. It's up there. And they had lost power the night before. Oh, God. Roomful of Blues was supposed to play the night before, and they lost power. And so we were, like, calling, should we come and play? And actually, had we been booked Friday night, you know, as a, as a – bluegrass band we could have played acoustically and it would have been you know by candlelight it would have been pretty cool it would have been cool yeah. pretty intimate as long as the beer was still flowing it would have been fun <laughs> it was all good so we were happy about that extra hour it was a good thing nice why don't we start off with the basics you've been playing how long oh all my life pretty much i started uh started playing piano when i was about four years old my mom was a piano teacher and so, and my father was a conductor and professor of music at the University of Redlands in California. Now, I was born in Madison, but he got the job that, I mean, he got the, my parents met at University of Wisconsin. You know, he was a composition major and my mom was a piano major. And uh, he, he was teaching in that area. And uh, so I was born. And then during that next year, he got this job in California. So by the time I was one, Redlands, California. So uh, anyway, my mom was teaching piano. I saw kids every day come play piano. And my sister's two and a half years older. So when she was in first grade, time to start piano. And I was like, you know, the keeping up sibling, right? So if she was going to play piano, well, I can do that. You know, so I'd sit there and listen to her practice. And when she was done, I would go, you know, figure out by ear what she had done. So you were, weren't necessarily compelled to play. It just was in the lineage of what was going on in the family. I mean, would yeah. you have done it otherwise? Do you think you would have somehow stumbled upon it? Or, Boy, it, it's, it's hard to know because yeah. it's just what we did. You know, it was like I was keeping up. And obviously I could play by ear or like right away, mm. you know. And so my mom. You're one of those. Being smart, she, <laughs> she gave me another book, a different book than my sister, so that I would also learn how to read music. And, and I liked it. I liked it well enough. And then pretty soon I started playing like the theme songs from my favorite TV shows, you know, like Adam's Family and F Troop and stuff like that. And I thought it was pretty cool to be able to do those. And, uh, and that, that was by ear. You were just faking it till you make it, that kind of deal? Or? Yeah. 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 I could, because I, I could play by ear, you know, right away. Wow. And then 
my sister, again, in, in fifth grade in California, you get to choose a band instrument, you know? So she chose uh, the flute to play. And again, I was like, well, she's going to play two different instruments, then I'm going to play two different instruments. So I chose the clarinet because I used to like the sound of the, it was the cat in, in Peter and the Wolf, mm-hmm. you know? Right. You know, I like that sound. All over Looney Tunes, yeah, bass clarinet on that stuff is great. Oh, yeah. 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 So that was when I was eight. And then when I was 10, I started really getting interested in guitar. And, uh, of course, I'd seen the Beatles on TV. And I didn't think when I first saw them, I didn't think that's anything I could ever do. You know, that was, like, unbelievable, you know. Mm -hmm. And then we had a ukulele around the house. Um, Because my my dad's aunt had loved the Grand Ole Opry and, I don't know, tried to play the ukulele or something. So I started messing with that, you know, with chords and stuff. And uh, I pretty quick wanted a guitar, you know, an electric guitar, not just a guitar, an electric guitar. Do you remember what it was? What you lost it after? uh, I wanted anything. You know, I didn't know anything about brands at all. So and Sears looked good back then, right? Anything, yeah. you know, and, and my parents didn't think it was a good idea because they thought it was a fad, first of all. They didn't think it was a serious instrument. Mm-hmm. And they also thought, well, he's going to practice piano every day, clarinet every, every day. You know, he's got to have a lot of time to be a kid, you know, not just practice everything. But I started borrowing guitars from other people. Okay, so they took the hint, like, okay, they're he's like, this. he's really serious, yeah. And so by the by the time it took two years though, by the time I was twelve for Christmas, I got a Saint George guitar that was sort of like a, a Japanese copy of a of a Jaguar, kind of. You still have it? I wish I did. I spent many years trying to find one exactly like it. Yeah, isn't that funny? And I did. Yeah. But that guitar, my my first guitar, I, I wanted it to look like a Rickenbacker. Beatles, so yeah. yeah, so I, you know, I, I did the headstock great. You know, I really did a oh, good job in the headstock, but the body it had such like a deep cutouts for the electronics. They were the same place where I wanted to, you know, make the points like a Rickenbacker, and mm-hmm. so I tried to fill it in with some kind of a resin or something, and it sunk too low, and mm. it, it the body ended up in the trash. Yeah, so. that's probably a good thing. <laughs> So it wasn't rock and roll, though, that got you. Like everybody else, you say you saw the Beatles, and it wasn't like this aha epiphany, like I could be John Lennon. It was more like, okay, that's just kind of going in line with what I want to do. I want to play guitar. What well, was the, the big shift for you? Um, I guess, you know, like when I first saw the Beatles, it just didn't, there wasn't something I thought I could even do, you know. Yeah. It seemed out of reach, you mm-hmm. know. Then I just started hearing the, I just loved the music on the radio. You okay. know, I was hearing like stuff like, that maybe I thought I could play. Like there's a song called Little Little Black Egg or Little, let's see, Little Brown Egg with the Little Black Specks. And it was not, not too hard, you know? It was like kind of easy guitar part. And so I was hearing that and like uh, Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. That was my their first Little Red one, Riding yeah. Hood and, and of course House of Rising Sun, you know, and Day Tripper and stuff like that that didn't seem so far away. Okay. Satisfaction. Stuff on the radio, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so yeah, it was rock. I mean, I wanted to play electric guitar. That was that was all there is to it. So would it be safe to say you're doing piano because that's what you're supposed to do? You're playing the horn because of school. 
and would you say guitar was like dessert? It was like, okay, you're going to have your, you do everything you need to do. And, and if you're done with that, you well, can play that, guitar. Well, that was the idea. Okay. They said, you know, if you practice your other stuff, then you dessert? can practice guitar. Keith heard dessert. And that's yeah. That's what he's done. Yeah. 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 It, it, well, they said that I wasn't supposed to practice the guitar until I practiced everything else right. first. Mm-hmm. But it was an electric guitar. Right. So I just didn't plug in and I practiced. It would <laughs> never know. still played as easy. Yeah. yeah. You're never going to know. I yeah. prac- and I had a, the worst amp ever. Ever? Which, uh, probably. Well, it wasn't a gorilla. That's what. what no, what it wasn't a gorilla or a crate. Oh, you know? my God. No, two but, brands we don't carry, by the way. So crate is great. <laughs> yeah, right. No, this was you. You got it at the grocery store. Oh, okay. You know, there was yeah. a little rack of of Tysco Del Rey guitars, and in the bottom, now they're desirable. Checkmate amps. Wow. Yeah, so this was a Checkmate sixty six, which means it had two six inch speakers. Not sixty six watts. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like solid state. It was made out of that really, really thin particle. Board, you know? Oh yeah, and that's part uh, of the charm. It uh, just sounded terrible. Someone, someone out there is going to make a pedal now that the sound replicates like that sound. Yeah, well, everything else has been done. So that's true. That's true. Yeah, the, that was the only thing you could get in my town was Checkmate stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yep, yep. That was our local grocery store. So it begs the question. I mean, such rudimentary gear stuff yeah. that you you're saying admittedly was awful. Why continue? What compelled you to keep going? And, and how did you kind of evolve from? Oh, oh I'm picking stuff up on the radio. Yeah, Where'd you go? I was well, like I said before, like you know, figuring out stuff by ear was not super hard for me. Okay, you know, so I just started learning stuff from from records, and you know, loved the Beatles, Rolling Stones, Beach Boys. I liked anything with harmonies, birds association um i went to my parents took me to disneyland and it was some kind of special music weekend and the cow sills were playing there oh great yeah and so i knew they were like the same age as me was this around the time of hair on before hair okay rain park and other things yeah 1967 and i you know i'd read about them and their drummer was my age okay no he plays with the beach boys now i can do this yeah well it was like yeah all right they've got gear and they're on stage and they're yeah so that i thought i could sure you know and the love and spoonful was also there wow that's and i remember build. them there was a stage that rose out of the ground you know and uh here comes john sebastian with the auto harp you know ring, yeah, yeah. Ring. it's like so cool <laughs> and uh the grassroots were also there nice. but for today was on the radio so you know i got to see some bands and that just you know yeah that just drove me crazy and i just wanted even more you know and i and i i had gear lust you know immediately Mm -hmm. you know as soon as i figured out what was good right you know so you're sitting in class at school and you're drawing pictures of guitars on your notebook. of course yeah sounds familiar and and so the next instrument i learned how to play was the bassoon that's a natural progression yeah. when you think about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, in, in in those days in Southern California, if you wanted to audition for the Allstate Honor Band, you had to be in your school band. Okay. Okay. So I was playing clarinet in my school band, and I was in seventh grade in junior high, and I had already been playing in my father's university wind ensemble, and I'd take private lessons, so I was better than the other kids, basically, and I was bored, you know, so... But the second year, I asked the conductor, I said, I want to stay in band, but 
give me the hardest instrument there yeah. is to play. Double read and anything. I was just thinking. And chicks love double reads. Oh, yeah. They <laughs> go for bassoon. Yeah. Forget it. Yeah. yeah. So I started on the bassoon. <laughs> and strangely, it, it, there was work. You know, I, I, I got a gig almost immediately. Because every church does, <laughs> does <laughs> the what? Well, every yeah. church in Christmas time plays the Messiah. Oh, okay. There and they go. need a little orchestra. And there's like usually two bassoons. So, you know, I got this gig and I think I made $25. Nice. And I used that to buy a crybaby Wawa. There you go. <laughs> you know. So, did you transfer your ability to read on these other instruments to being able to read on the guitar? Yeah. Yeah. I could, because I already understood, yeah, the note. And just once you understand how it goes, you know, if it's higher, it's a higher note. If it's lower, it's a lower it's note. Just, it's, it's a crazy it's, instrument to read on, though. It's, yeah, it, oh, yeah, yeah, it's not easy to read on. What's you the basically, old joke? like, I learned scales and that, stuff. Oh, the, the old joke, how do you get a guitar player to stop playing? Well, no, first, how do you get them to turn down? Yeah. Oh, how do you do it? You put a chart in front of them. Right. That's and it. then how do you get them to stop? Which is? You put notes on it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, somewhere a drummer is laughing at us. That's good. Exactly. But that's a great question because I was going to, when we knew you were coming in, I know that I knew you always as a guitar player. And so we did some digging and then to, to find out how proficient you are on clarinet and sax and things like that. Um, you always hear guitar players saying, I wish I played more like a horn player. Holdsworth said it. Uh, there's a bunch wow. of guys, you know, as someone who does play those instruments, does that inform how you play guitar? Or is it something you never even think about? You keep them in separate compartments? I think it does. I, I think it does. Um, for me, it sort of went the other way, strangely, because guitar, um, as far as reading, you know, I learned some scales. And once you know a couple scales, then you can kind of read because right. you have to sort of stay in a position when you're reading. You know, it's not the right. best thing for guitar because guitar is all about position to me, mm -hmm. you know, where something sounds good on the neck, right? So when you're just reading, you kind of just have to play out of a position. So it's, mm. it's kind of lame, but you know, you do it, right? Um, but a number of years later, you know, so pretty much my whole development is I would be studying classical music on these other instruments and playing in orchestras and bands and taking private lessons. Mm -hmm. And then I would be in garage bands, you know, with my friends and we'd be playing whatever mountain or led zeppelin or cream or credence or who santana whatever you know all of the stuff that was around then and so i i would have to improvise you know like i would learn the solo from badge but then when we played it uh, after the first couple of licks i would forget you know <laughs> so i would have to improvise so I, I learned you know i was forced to improvise quick and and i your bad memory exactly exactly <laughs> If I could have played it exactly like him, I would have done that. But it, it, it forced me to improvise, and, and, and I realized I could do it, you know, and it, it wasn't scary for me or anything. Mm -hmm. And then years later, I got this job playing at Disneyland where I was supposed to play bluegrass mandolin in the morning and Dixieland clarinet in the afternoon. Typical gig. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I lied at the time because sure. I didn't even own a mandolin. The mandolin's my life. Absolutely. But I wanted yeah. to learn. I really did want to learn it. I was right. really intrigued by it, but I didn't own one. And I, I played clarinet, but only classical, not Dixieland or jazz or anything. I didn't even like it, actually, you know, the Dixieland at the mm -hmm. time. I thought it was corny, like Shakey's Pizza Parlor music. Mm -hmm. But I needed a job, you know. So 
here I am, I'm starting to trying to learn mandolin in the right tuning and stuff. And then the clarinet, I could learn the melodies pretty quick. You know, it was not easy, it was not hard for me, but then I had to improvise. So I would play licks from the guitar on the clarinet or the saxophone. That makes sense. Do you feel like you could swing a little bit more on guitar? I mean, the, the key being, you know, okay, you play clarinet and you knew classical. So where do you go from there? Well, yeah, I could do Dixieland, but it's the feel more than anything. It's the same notes. So how do you acquire that feel? How do you acquire the swing of, of playing that? I just, well, at the time, I just listened to the other guys that knew it better. Okay, and you just you felt know? it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they liked my improvising because it was a little bit different, you know? It, it I wasn't trying to emulate Benny Goodman or Artie Shaw or, or Sidney Bechet or any of these other, you know, players. I was just, again, like doing what I could do to get by, and it, and it became kind of unique. So that phrasing then would in turn, you know, inform the phrasing on the guitar. Okay. And I think people like Alan Holsworth say that because on a horn, it's more like singing. You have to stop and breathe. Right. You can't just continually play. So that's why, you know, that's why they say glasses help a guitar player's phrasing. I believe it. Because you have yeah. to stop and push them up your nose. Yeah. <laughs> Every once I just so saw well. a video of Borelli playing something. And he, <laughs> he did this, like, kind of, for him, cheesy, it, it, just to push his glasses up. Uh, okay. I mean, he yeah. just got done burning through something. and Oh, yeah. Borelli can stand on his head and do cartwheels and still play incredible stuff. Absolutely. This is Borelli Legrand, for those people listening, who's amazing, amazing musician. Well, that kind of helps with the leap, right? I mean, obviously, you're at a time where you're playing guitar. There's, It's everywhere. You know, rock is everywhere, folk, blues. You're hearing it. Gypsy jazz. Where do you find it? How do you how do you get compelled to go and jump into that? And that, that is a different animal altogether. It, it's so different. Um, and that was part of the appeal. It was, like, so, you know, very uh, almost, like, mystical sounding. Um, well, so, it, again, with Disneyland, so I, I really... I really went for the mandolin. I really liked it, and I I, I kind of started a little bit with David Grisman and then went back, you know, to Bill Monroe and uh, found the other modern guys along the way, Sam Bush and Ricky Skaggs, and and I really gravitated towards Jesse McReynolds, mm -hmm. who did a, a cross-picking style of mandolin, which was phenomenal. Um, so I was learning that whole world, you know, and, and also the vocals and everything about it. I really liked it a lot. And then in the, the kind of the Dixieland style, I, w I was realizing, okay, this is not just a corny music. There's some really deep shit in here. You know? Oh, yeah. And I found, you know, Louis Armstrong and, and, and all of that really trad jazz, you know, is sure. what it is. And it's great music. And found people like the Boswell sisters that sang amazing harmonies in that style, and um, and and so the the banjo player in our group was steeped in um, Harry Reeser and Eddie Peabody, and Eddie Peabody was a plectrum banjo player, which is a particular tuning, um, as opposed to finger picks or. Um, plectrum banjo tuning, yeah, you play it with a pick. Okay. It's not a five string banjo is tuned to an open G and you play it with finger picks. And you and roll thumb pick. Right. And it's rolls. That's yep. Earl Scruggs style. So that's what's bluegrass. Plectrum. Um the plectrum is uh, four string 
and it's mostly chordal based stuff. It's moving fast chords all up and down the neck. Okay. Really inversions. It's like, I mean, chord melodies in jazz guitar, but in banjo, it's like so that, you're not like on speed. You're not even comping. You're you're no, you're playing melodies and oh, oh okay, it's wow. just crazy up and oh. down chords and stuff. And and then tenor banjo is tuned in fifths like a like a viola or a mandola or a lower than a mandolin, mm-hmm. you know, next and and that's more single note. Okay. So Harry Reeser was a virtuoso single note tenor banjo player that played all these novelty pieces in the twenties and thirties that were phenomenal and you know, just and so this banjo player in our group, he could play those. He could play the plectrum style, he could play the five string banjo. Amazing. Right. So I'm thinking, well, I, I'm really a guitar player, and every day I'm only playing mandolin and clarinet. So I want to create another entity for this group where I can play the guitar. And so I'm looking for something flashy like this banjo player with stuff. On, and I find Eddie Lang, I find Dick McDonough, I find Carl Kress, uh, Charlie Christian. Uh, it's all great, but it's not... It's not that wow factor, right? You know, and I keep asking people, "Isn't there somebody on guitar? You know, in the '30s, it was like this, you mm. know." And everybody would say, "Oh, Django Reinhardt," yeah. with this reverence, you know. And I would see his name in an interview with Jeff Beck, you know, in Guitar Player Magazine, or Clarence White, or Chet Atkins, or like George Benson. You know, every guitar player in every style would talk about this guy. So I went and I looked for a record. And the first one I found was like a rarities album. It had kind of unusual things like Django on a six string banjo playing with an accordion and a slide whistle. Oh. You know, like it wasn't the, <laughs> this, it wasn't, it wasn't the, a hot club. Yeah. It wasn't the classic You're stuff. This so is what was, these guys liked. So I was a little bit like, <laughs> like oh, are they sure this is, is the right Django? Yeah, this is a little odd. It was Django Smith he picked up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Damn it. So I went back and, and that, then I found like this collection of all the classic, you know, Stefan Grappelli, Hot Club of Hot France, Club mm-hmm. you know, After You've Gone, Avalon, Limehouse Blues, so you Minor knew when you found Swing. It. You're like, this is and it. And I always oh, like, oh, yeah, yeah, this this is exactly what I was looking for. It's like Jimi Hendrix excitement. Ask, was it that excitement? Yeah. Yes, on acoustic guitar. Like the tone and the technique and the, passion and the phrasing and the swing the improvisation the drive their whole rhythm of that group was really kick-ass you know they just sound so joyful and so like i learned over the years of like techniques that django did he he would uh, when the chords would change he would have already moved into the next chord with his soloing was that instinctive or was it was he driving Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it always was moving forward. Yeah, you know, it wasn't like, oh, here comes a new chord. Oh, I'm going to play this. No, it was like he was leading everybody and with two fingers. Yeah, yes. Which is, I mean, that's and almost that's not another. Fair. That's you, you an, yeah, another thing. Like seriously, like I'd hear these runs and stuff, and like, no, that's not possible. Yeah. So that made me super curious, like. All right, let's just see if it's possible. So I started learning, you know. Did you emulate that or did you say, oh, oh yeah. screw it, I'm using my all my fingers? No, or... I wanted to see how it was done. Okay. And I wanted to see where those positions were because 
Yeah, you could play the same notes with four fingers. Sure. But it's not going to take it you to sounds, the same place. And it sounds different. It sounds completely because your your picking is going to be different. Where you are on the neck, the way the string sounds at that spot on the neck is all those things are different. And those are what makes his playing so colorful right. and so exciting. Yeah. Because you're not sitting there in a box, blah, 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 blah. No, pentatonics, yeah. No, you're like, whoa, from the bottom to the top. And and you're playing notes up here, like on the lower strings that you probably would never play, you know, but they're fat. Right. You know? They're awesome. Yeah, it's not super linear. It's It moves all over the place. Oh, Did he play in standard? Yeah, his, yeah. Tuning, yeah, his tuning was normal. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you figure he's, he's doing everything we're doing with less fingers. Yeah. Better. Well, and the the, the thing about <laughs> him is that fair. he was already a virtuoso player before he was in the fire. Yeah. He was, like, when he was 14, the, the most popular music in Paris, he was living in a caravan outside of Paris, and the popular music was called Musette. And this was, like, Paris version of honky-tonks, like wow. rough dance halls, and the music would be an accordion would be the lead instrument, mm-hmm. and playing kind of waltzes three four time but not like an elegant viennese waltz it would be like a rough waltz and that was the the dance music and the the accompaniment would usually be a banjo or a guitar tune he played guitar tune banjo because it was loud enough you know and some sort of percussion instrument maybe so he was already earning money for his family when he was 14 years old (laughs) and playing with the top accordion players of paris of the day so when he had his accident, he was 18, and all of his, you know, they they grieved the loss of this genius, sure, yeah. you know, because at every family gathering, it would be you'd eat and then you'd pull out the instruments and mm-hmm. everybody would be jamming and 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 he was so bummed out, you know, he would just leave, you know, and when when that happened, and then at some point, you know, he. He relearned how to play just using his two fingers, basically. And then one day at one of the family gatherings, he didn't leave. He stayed, mm-hmm. and and then everyone was like, you know, freaked out. Yeah. yeah, they were so happy, and yeah. So when you play that, do you still find yourself using two fingers? Or you I say, do a lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't like. I'll do a couple of songs in my set uh, where I just show. Okay, this, this is, is how, how it's it. done. Yeah. yeah. And then a lot of the licks just work that way, you know. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't force myself to stay unless I'm making a point, you know, of, of this is how it could be done. You don't go method acting? Yeah. Well, <laughs> the pencil it, thin funny, mustache. It's <laughs> funny you should mention that because just recently, so in 2003, um, I got a call from somebody at, uh, I think it was at Guitar Player Magazine. And they said, you know, a guy called looking for somebody that could do replicate some Django Reinhardt music for a film. And is it okay if we give him your number? I was like, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Get paid to do for this? For a price, yeah. Yeah. So uh, this guy called me about this film. A director, a British Australian director named John Duggan was doing a film set in the 30s in Paris. It actually spanned a lot of different the Spanish Revolution and all, a lot of different things, but uh, the centerpiece was 30s Paris, and he wanted a couple of Django's tracks, but they didn't want to use the original recordings because they were going to sound old 
and the dialogue was going to be new and, mm -hmm. you know, it was it supposed to be, be an odd fit. Yeah. But they wanted that sound, right. you know, and, and they'd looked for a couple of people that to try to replicate it and they, they weren't finding them. And so I sent some music I'd recorded in that style and, and the director called me and he said, Yes, you know, Django Reinhardt, he makes a particular racket on the guitar. And, and, and you're the first one that I've heard that makes that same sort of racket. Well, thanks. <laughs> like backhanded compliment. Is that yeah. good or bad? <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So I got the gig. So I, so I, you know, we're talking about, so I, you know, I'd love to do this, you know, and I can replicate those tracks. And, and uh, he said, well, there's a little bit of Django on camera as well. Mm. And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm Norwegian and I don't look anything like Django, <laughs> but I would do any, I would give anything. I will to, chop my to, fingers to off do to do that. Yeah. And he says, well, we'll have to get the prosthetics department to do something special for your hand. I said, yeah, that would be so cool. <laughs> and he goes, oh, I was just joking. How could you play? I know me too. I was just kidding. I said, well, I've already learned those things with two fingers. That's how much of a geek I am about Django. That's so, funny. so I, I did it. You know, I did the, the film was called Head in the Clouds and uh, Charlize Theron and Penelope Cruz nice. and Stuart Townsend were the stars of it. And in the scene where I'm supposed to be Django with this quintet playing in a Paris nightclub and uh, Charlize Theron and Penelope Cruz are dancing together. Wow. So it's a nice, yeah. It's That's a not nice distracting scene. in any way. <laughs> yeah. you know, right. They said, okay, we want a reaction from you. And I'm like, yeah, yeah no problem. Yeah, can do. <laughs> Done. <laughs> so that, in 2003, that really kind of propelled me to finish an album I'd been working on for years mm -hmm. and use that publicity from the film to, you know, to publicize this album. And that really was kind of the start of, a gypsy jazz career because when i first found it back in 1979 1980 i thought this is what i'm going to do this is this is it you know i mm -hmm. loved it and mm -hmm. but there was no there was nothing no one knew anything about well, that's it that's the thing yeah there was no festivals there was no gigs maybe you could play on a trad jazz gig as sort of a side band or something but no one I, I couldn't see a career. I mean, no, you were I trying to replicate that hot club sound. With a, yeah. With you and four other guys. Yeah. 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 And, but there was no place to play. I mean, it was like, and so by 2003, a lot of things had changed. You know, the internet was there. Mm. So all these people that liked that music were able to find each other. And they started having festivals in America. Right. And a couple of companies started to make affordable gypsy jazz guitars. That's the big one right there, yeah. You know? You need uh, that that particular the guitane or whatever how you pronounce it, you know, yeah. that kind of guitar. Yeah. It's a the Selmer. Selmer was yeah. the builder of the, of the old guitars and yeah. and I was really lucky and my band back in Disneyland, we had three original Selmers in our band. Oh, wow, wow. really? The McAfee. Crazy. Yeah. 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 And they were playable still? They weren't uh, in Oh, they're amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they need, you know, sometimes they need work, but you know, Don't we all? Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, uh, Saga, who, who made the Jeton mm -hmm. line, was one of the companies, that, and they got it right. And then there was another company called Del Arte in San Diego, and, and they were doing a nice job. And so before that, it was just if you could find a Selmer, it was really expensive, or a Favino maybe. Which mm -hmm. you, you never saw any of those guitars in America. 
So now all of a sudden there's guitars and there's other people that are into it and there's festivals and there's workshops and, and I kind of jumped on onto that already with a bit of a name at that time. Cause I'd already had, you know, the desert Rose band and the Helicasters and Elton John and these, all these different things. So it, it was fantastic. And I would have never dreamed that would happen, you know, was, so that, you know, since then I've, I've had a quintet and touring the world playing that music. Hmm. Now, is it those other high profile gigs that allow you to do, I mean, obviously at the end of the day, this is something you're passionate about. You love yeah, it. I do. And you knew you couldn't make a full-time career out of it. So you say to yourself, well, you know, I'm a good player. I could, I could adapt to playing with, with the Desert Rose Band or Elton John. And those are the gigs, not that you don't like them any as much, but they afford you the ability to go and do what's truly your passion, I would assume. Well, at, at that time, I just, when, when I kind of realized that there was no scene, I just said, okay, that's going to be my hobby music. Okay. And I'll just jam with my friends that. And I'll do, you know, something else. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and in those days in, at Disneyland, I was doing bluegrass in the morning, like swing in the midday, and Dixieland in the afternoon. And then at night, I would drive up to Hollywood and either play with rockabilly bands or country bands or rock bands. Wow. So I wasn't happy just staying with that job. You know, I wanted to move on. Mm. So, you know, I, I put together a, a country band because that kind of combined a lot of stuff I liked. Harmony singing, some bluegrass, some rockabilly, some country blues, you know, all into one thing. And uh, that band kind of morphed into the Desert Rose Band. Hmm. The bass player and drummer and myself were all ended up being in the Desert Rose Band. And Sneaky Pete Kleinow was this pedal steel player. Yeah. Um, our first gig we ever did, Albert Lee came and sat in with us. Oh, wow. So first was, gig? Yeah. 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 It was kind of wild. That's and I, cool. I was actually kind of bummed out that he didn't bring a Telecaster. Oh, what did he bring? Just he a, brought a Les Paul. You're kidding. Oh, yeah. There's a some black pictures, yeah. Les Paul He's got, custom. I definitely seen him with that yeah. guitar. Yeah. He loves that guitar. He had yeah. it since he was a kid, I think. Yeah, he likes you know? that guitar. No, and so it's when, he, you know, when he doesn't have to do his thing, his he shred, can just bring yeah. whatever. Yeah, exactly. But uh, it, it, and I don't like any, any music, you know, more or less than any other, you know. Uh, no. It, it, it. It's music. Yeah. And like I said, you know, things, I, I felt like I was really lucky with timing with a lot of things because the, the timing of the Desert Rose Band coincided with sort of an open-minded time in country music where you had some other people like Lyle Lovett and Katie Lang and Foster and Lloyd mm -hmm. and the O'Kanes, Steve Earle. And it was a blip kind of, you know. That was a great and then time, it went yeah. away, you know. It, it became no offense to the hats, but it, it became all about the hats and in like Garth Brooks and sure. Alan Jackson and Clint Black. And, you well, know, it exploded it, at that it point. It went yeah. away from anything that, you know, what we were doing, which was a bit more West coast kind of thing, but, but the timing was great. And it established me as a, a session player too in Nashville. And, and then when we started the Helicasters, it was just for fun. We were just going to do one show together for fun. And then uh, it, the timing was, was really good. I mean, people were hungry for that. And Shred had been around long enough by that time for people to sort of get tired of it a little bit. Yeah. 
But here was something that was still technically hard. For, yeah, for it sure. was still shredding, but it was a different tone. It was a different attitude. Different melodies. Right. And, yeah. and more melodic and yeah. more fun. And that was an era when a lot of hot players in Nashville and they were getting recognized. Yeah. And Brent Mason kind of yeah. came on the scene at the same time. A little, Yeah, maybe a little bit after, but we, it, you couldn't have never planned that. Right. You know, we didn't go, oh, well, people are going to be tired of shreds still like this. No, it was not in our mind Nothing at all. premeditated. It was just no, organic. No, well, it, was, it was, wasn't supposed to be but one gig. So whose know? brainchild was that? Was it you or is it uh, Will? Or? I would have to say it was kind of, it was kind of Will more. Um, at that time, there had been an album. Like there was a, a lot of country music coming out of L.A. Mm -hmm. uh, the Desert Rose Band, Dwight Yoakam band called Highway 101, mm -hmm. Jim Lauderdale, uh, James Zinfeld, Rosie Flores. We were all part of a scene, you right. know, in, in North Hollywood. And it, it, uh, there was a an album, compilation album called Town South of Bakersfield that was a lot of other people, I don't want to say wannabes, but it was, you know, people trying to get their thing going. Were they doing the buck thing or what? Was well, everyone was doing uh, their version of, well, you know, uh, some Wanda Jackson kind of thing, okay. some all different kinds of country, loosely country, but mm -hmm. L.A. style, you know? Okay. And so Will Will was asked to produce sort of a budget version of that called Hollywood Roundup. And <laughs> within that, they said he could, on one track, he could do whatever he wanted. Go crazy. So he thought, let's just bring in all the guitar players. So he brought in me, Jerry Donahue, and Jeff Ross, and Billy Bremner, uh, love and Billy Bremner. himself. Yeah, and so you know it was called I think it was called Picker's Paradise or something clever, creative. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then uh, the, at the time there was this thing called the Barn Dance, which was at the Palomino, a weekly, like on the off night, they'd have this thing where there'd be sort of a loose house band. And then a lot of different people could sign up. It's not like a talent show, but more like a... An open jam kind of thing? Not, it wasn't so open because it'd be planned. Okay. But but you'd have maybe 10 or 12 different acts in the night. And each person would hopefully bring some people. Mm -hmm. And everyone was friends. And you might play with the house band or a whole band might come in. or So it was a scene. And all those people were there. Dale Watson and James Infeld and Jim Lauderdale and... You know, Dwight would sometimes come in and, you know, we were all, we were all friends. So you'd go and it'd be a social thing. And so one time Will, Will wanted to, he said, why don't we do a thing at the barn dance? But five guitars is just too much. So let's just do three and we'll just be the singers. I'm like, okay, great. Cause we were sick of backing up singers sure. all the time. It's your time. So it, and then I, it, the, the name was my idea because I knew it would be like Telly's from hell. Sure. And, and then I said too, if we do this, I don't want to do like chicken picking and blues jams. Cause that's what people are going to expect. And that's lame. Mm -hmm. And I was a big fan of Jerry's solo album telecasting mm -hmm. and he'd written some really nice compositions on there. So I said, let's do you know, Jerry's thing. And then I'll write a couple of things for that was us. after Fairpoint. Yeah. You, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was after Fairport and, and, and Sandy Denny and fathering gay and Joan. It's Armand amazing. Yeah, and all that stuff. The history of his playing too is, Oh, it's 
That's a separate podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was, you know, he was very inspiring as a composer on the guitar mm-hmm. to me, as well as his technique. Sure. You know, and uh, strange, a side story is the this other band that I had put together, the country band, was called the Cheatin' Hearts. The singer was a girl named Kitra. And I, she, she was responsible for a lot, I think, because she introduced me to Jerry. She took me to see him play. Mm. You know, they were friends. And I was like, wow, this guy's amazing. And she was also friends with Albert. And she was friends with Sneaky Pete. Oh, wow. And Pretty connected. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and I met her because she had a, a rockabilly band called Kitcher and the Cobras. And Johnny Meeks was her guitarist from uh, Gene Vincent's Blue Caps. Oh, awesome. So he couldn't make the gig. So my friend Jeff Ross was the sub. Jeff couldn't do the gig, so he sent me as his sub. (laughs) And the drummer I loved on the gig, and I introduced myself to him in the break, and I said, you're phenomenal. Where did you come from? He says, oh, I used to play with Rick Nelson in the Stone Canyon Band. Wow. I saw you. Was killer, great drummer. Well, I got him to be in my country band, which then he was the drummer in the Desert Rose Band, and on most of the Helicasters stuff too. Oh, Steve okay. Duncan. Okay. So Kitra was. That's she, huge. It's like a. She introduced me to a well, lot of people. And, she's the, she's the oracle in this case. Yes. Yeah, and she's now married to Bob Moore, who was kind of a uh, a, a classic bass player, early sessions in Nashville. You know, Roy Orbison and Elvis and Patsy Klein. was one of the first call guys. Yeah. Yeah. He was one of the A-team. Yeah. So anyway, she introduced, I, I was already friends with Jerry. And and I, I'd seen Will play. He was in a band called Tin Star. And first thing I remember is he had the Boss Vibrato pedal. Great pedal. And it was like, wow, but what's that sound? You know, it's a really great sound. And yeah. So I bought that pedal because I'd heard him use it. Sure. And then I ended up using that on uh, Desert Rose Band records, both number one records, He's Back and I'm Blue, and I Still Believe in You Now. He's Back and I'm Blue is on a six-string bass, Dan Electro, vintage 58, I think. And uh, and then another side story, <laughs> I was brought in to play on Leroy Parnell's records when he was a country artist back in the early 90s. Sure. And, and I was using that pedal, you know, on something. And the, the producer was like, eh, I don't mm. think I like that effect on your <laughs> guitar, blah, 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 blah. And I was, I was kind of being a little bit smart-ass. I said, well, okay, last two times I used it on songs, they went number one, but I can turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to have that in your back pocket, isn't it? <laughs> and, and, and I used it also on uh, Fam Tillis's first big hit, Maybe It Was Memphis. Now, did you have it set the same way in all those? It was a part of your sound, it's or did you roughly the same way? Yeah, yeah. I liked that uh, kind of pitch warble thing, you know, that just sounded like you grabbed your vibrato arm. It was and like just, warped vinyl almost. Yeah, yeah, which a, is a great well, sound. Yeah. The other thing is, uh, on, on "He's Back and I'm Blue," you know, the record starts with the six-string bass intro with that wobble on it. Yeah, and I heard that there, you know, in that days, if a radio station didn't add your record. It could mean you're either going to go number one or not, mm. right? And there was this one station that I was like, why won't they add the record? And it came back that they thought that the pressing was bad <laughs> and that it was warbly. 
I'm like, oh my god, I'm in the wrong, I'm it's, in the wrong genre. Well, you they, got to put that disclaimer. Like the, the sounds on this record are how we want it. You know? Yeah, exactly. distortion is intentional. Like you know? I did, I did something I thought was cool, and they thought it was a mistake. You know. <laughs> it's broken. Yeah. yeah, that's the majority of my playing. By the way, I thought that was cool. Oh, it sounded like a mistake to me. <laughs> I liked what you were trying to do there. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Uh, you know, it's funny though. Back to the Helicasters, which again brings me back to to the Gypsy Jazz thing. Is yeah. when I was a kid and I had the Helicasters album, and we, Keith and I were talking about this. So you would listen to it. It's like, all right, is that Jerry? Is is that John? Is that well? And it was hard to tell at times because you, in your mind you would think, yeah, it's three guys playing similar instruments that sound completely different. Yeah, all serving the song. Yeah, when when you hear a guy like Brad Paisley or or Tommy Emmanuel or something, and, and you you're so steeped in gypsy jazz, do you hear that influence on their playing as well? You're like that lick, like Bonamassa played something that Django played, you know, eighty years ago and made it his thing. Or sometimes, um, you know, like I was, we were listening to Willie's Roadhouse on Sirius. Yeah, yeah that's a great and, station. And all of a sudden, you know, the the guitar in the back doing fills is going like very very technical yeah and i'm like okay that dude was into django right you can you just know, hear you it can right just hear it yeah i mean i don't really hear i i don't hear django in in brad paisley um he he has he hasn't really been into it like the that much mm -hmm. tommy definitely you know mm -hmm, for sure know, yes almost more the rhythm you know He's just, he's crazy about rhythm. Really? Sure he is. Yeah. Heart attack. He's a one-man band. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, and when he was a kid, too, his he had to be the rhythm and the bass, and his brother was the lead. Okay. So they were doing Shadows stuff, and his brother was Hank, and he would have to be Bruce Welsh and Jet Harris at the same time. Okay. You know, and play the rhythm and bass. That's and so his, and, and Tommy plays drums, too, so his, his soul is very, very rhythmic. Oh, for sure. Know. A lot of the best guitar players at least know how to play drums or actually are drummers. It's amazing. You know, you hear Paul McCartney and, and how good he is at everything. Yeah. And, and you realize he's a hell of a drummer too on top. Yeah. Of it. And it's guys yeah. like that you want to strangle. But, yes. uh, <laughs> but it's neat because when I was younger, I was picking up guitar and I, I would hear a lot of blues players in the players of rock players. So I'd hear like Angus Young or anything. And I'd be like, oh, this is all original. This is new. And you go, well, no, go back. And you could see who they were ripping off and see who they were ripping off. Sure. And you wonder to yourself, are there more players kind of borrowing from from Django and players like that and putting it into their style, knowing that, hey, mate, no one's going to catch me because no one knows who this guy is. Well, you can hear, you know, you can definitely hear it, like, uh, in Beatles sometimes. Mm -hmm. Honey Pie, the solo is very much kind of their version of, of Django a little bit. Um, there's a chord, the the almost at the end of the George, George Harrison solo until there was you. Mm, I love that solo. Um, and it's like a, I think it's like a flat five in the base of the chord or something. And that's a chord that Django used a lot and they didn't know what to call it. So they, they learned it from the guitar teacher at the shop where they bought their gear. His name was Jim Gretti. Okay. So they called it the Gretti chord. <laughs> <laughs> Joel just used the Gretti chord. I loved it though because they were passionate about finding a new chord and, and who oh you found a new chord you get on the bus and go to that guy's house and all right show it to me you know yeah yeah which is kind of a shame now because it seems like everybody's got everything laying at their feet. Well, YouTube does that. It you know? does, and it's yeah. it, which is helpful in some regard. But you know you talk about how you, your desire to play guitar and pick up things you were fortunate enough to be able to hear it. A lot of people it's it's the necessity what they have. 
yeah. what, what they can what they can do with what they've got when they've got it. Now everything is there, and it almost seems to stifle creativity. Well, it it just creates a different problem, I think. Not okay. problem, but a different challenge. You know, like my challenge was just like where can i get more stuff and you know if, if i could see anybody play wow mm, that right. was a big deal Same. you know you'd watch and then you'd you'd watch like smothers brothers because the who was going to be on there mm. but then they were lip syncing so it right. was like ah, you know it was still it, exciting but I agree. it was great to see but There's, but you you didn't get to learn that lick that you wanted there's nothing you know? like seeing a, a, a musician right up front and sure. i remember probably with the first like band that i saw was just like a blues band rehearsing it at the university where my father taught you mm. know and i remember like just wandering into the student union and wow these guys with guitars and amps and they're playing together and it was like this is oh, the real thing yeah. yeah i mean my mind exploded it was so cool it was like I, I have to be that you know and i'm still like that in a way like if i like something i want to be in that band. Want to get inside that. I wanna, yeah. yeah, I want to be all about it. You know, What do you attribute that to? I mean, someone who's been playing as long as you have, you have every right in the world to coast and say, well, you know, I'm good enough. This is fine. I've done what I've done, and I can, I can, I can play with Elton John. I can, I can tour the world. What makes you keep trying to do something different? Um, and well, the, I think it's sort of like the with knowledge or, or anything like that. The more you know, the more you realize there is to learn. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and music is like that too. Uh, you know, it's like, I, I, I want to be, yeah, I would love to be better technically. And, you know, you hear somebody like Yasha Heifetz and like, uh, I'd like to be that level, mm. you know, on the guitar. But, sure. um, but also, I'll see somebody like Leonard Cohen. Like, oh my God, the, the connection that he has with his audience is phenomenal. And it's so stripped I mean, down. And it's, you know, he's not a brilliant singer. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a brilliant poet, but the way that he performs and the way that he connects with his audience, you know, my, I had friends who started singing with him, the Webb sisters. And I said, how's it going with Leonard? He said, well, we had to get used to a few things. I said, <laughs> what? He said, oh, people openly weeping in front of us in the audience. Wow. Because they were so moved, you know. And, and so I, when I went to see him, I went, okay, I really have to up my game of connecting with the audience. You know, that's really important. And he's a master at it. Mm. And then I saw Archbishop Desmond Tutu give a speech about forgiveness. And same thing, he had the audience just right there and so important and so real and beautiful you know, mm -hmm. and tragic and, and everything. Again, it's like, all right, if I have the, the opportunity and the gift to be in front of people and I have their attention, I have to give them something. And mean so, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's kind of that. I mean, I it the I feel like the the better I get, the better I want to, to get, even in and it and it like I say, it's not in not just in music. It's, You're it's projecting in, your ex expectations into them. They're going to expect something special out of you, and you want to deliver it. That yeah, there is a there is an expectation too. Yeah, and I I don't I do not want to be. I mean, I've gone to see performers that you know let Phoned me it down in. or yeah yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't ever want to be that. Mm -hmm. You know that might be the only time that person ever 
sees me play or right. maybe you know who knows what and you, how want it, important. you don't want it to be like oh that that that's what that was all about but rather you want to be like, yeah wow i mean that you know like i said earlier brad paisley told me that you know he 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 believes his whole career is because he i inspired him at a gig and what if I would have been shitty on that gig? Right. You know, right. like well, you could have inspired him a different way. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm never doing this again. <laughs> I've got to be better than that guy. Yeah. That was easy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I I don't know. I I take it all seriously, but 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 because I love it too, you mm-hmm. know. And I'm still a fan. You know, I mean, a fan of the guitar. I'm a fan of the guitar. I'm a fan of music, yeah. of pedals, speakers, production. You know, just, you know, I mean, I can be as into trying to pick apart an ABBA record, you know, as a Jeff Beck record, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's all sounds and, and... I hate to break it to you, you're wrong there. It's, ABBA's not as good as Jeff Beck. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's a waste of time. But did you remember that formative moment for you? Like where Brad says, I knew it was at this gig, he was playing this guitar in that amp, and I was like, that's it. Was there one of those for you? or is um, it- Not so much seeing someone else. Uh, I think that, but there was a moment, I was, you know, when I was pretty young and I was 14 or 15 and the other guys in the band were in college mm-hmm. and we were playing at a college dance. And each, every Wednesday night, they'd have a two hour dance, you know, at the college and we'd finished playing our, you know, our second set or whatever. And everybody was like standing on the tables and stamping and screaming for more. And I'm like a kid and I'm like, wow. Okay. Yeah. This is what I want. Yeah, I mean that's I like want a drug. This yeah. feeling. Yeah. Starting tomorrow, we yeah. have to learn some more songs because we don't know any more songs. That's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Third set. Yeah, yeah. And and I can I think there's even a picture. You know, I can see the clock. I can see my guitar. I had a Hofner guitar that looked like a three thirty. Mm-hmm. I saved my money and I I went on a. We tour. might have one in that closet yeah, if you want to. Really? Yeah, it's a very it's a newer one. Oh, okay. Yeah. The body's about that thick. Yeah. See, uh, with gear, I mean, I knew, you know, already my, my St. George guitar was not good enough. Right. I saved my money. My father's university wind ensemble was going to Europe for a, a tour, and I, I was part of the – I was playing, and I was going to get to go. I knew that those guitars were going to be cheaper over there than they were in America. Bing. So, yeah, I in Amsterdam – You I were prepared. F- I found the shop – you know, with its sold Hofner guitars. And I went down there and I had my traveler's checks and, you know, that was the one I could afford. It wasn't right. the one I, you know, picked out the one I wanted. Sure. I could afford that one and it was better than what I had. So I think it was like $120 or something like that. But you cherished it. I mean, oh, it meant everything. Oh, it was awesome. Yeah. And I found a fuzz pedal that same trip. I was looking for a Marshall Super Fuzz. Okay. What'd you find? I found instead of Sola Sound Tone Bender. Right. They and I didn't know it because I'd been looking at that Super Fuzz in in an ad in a magazine called Beat Instrumental. Mm-hmm. It said fifteen seconds of sustain. You're like, that's it. Like, yes, that's what I want. <laughs> and I when when we got to England in London, I, I I looked up all the addresses in the music shops in the back of this magazine, and I went to each one of them trying to buy a Super Fuzz. Got this? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. that that was no, we don't sell those anymore. I'm like. 
Mm. Now I know England is very fad conscious, you know, and they'll have whatever's new and right. that's it. And so I went to, you know, I was persistent. Every shop I went to, finally the last shop, the guy says, no, no, we don't sell those anymore. But this is the one everybody uses now. Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck use yeah. it. Right. right. I was going to say Yardbirds in a box. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I guess so. If, they, if those guys play it. <laughs> Do you yeah. still have that? Because oh, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking, like, here you were disappointed with a pedal that most guys would give their right arm for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I finally, 50 years later, I got a Super Fuzz. In oh, you did? <laughs> that just, was it? It's a beast, man. It's so fantastic. <laughs> I have a friend in Italy who was a guitar, a vintage guitar dealer and collector for many years. And he had some a big theft and a bunch of stuff happened and stuff. But he he still had quite a lot of stuff in and I just asked him one day, "Do you ever have any?" Because you know, a lot of the a lot of the Vox stuff was made in Italy. Mm -hmm. Echo built the guitars, and right. Gem built the organs and pedals. And so, you have any Vox tone benders? I said, "No, not not anymore." Some of the was. So, what about a Marshall Superfuzz? Yeah, I think I have one of those. Really? Yeah, it's in the original box. Really? Oh, <laughs> I don't want it then. I said, "Why didn't you ever tell me?" He says. <laughs> You simply never asked. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All right, here's my list. I need this. No, I need this. He, I need he, this. he didn't. I said, oh, come on. I have, he said, look, you've wanted it 50 years. Right. Just just have. If here's you a couple pairs it. of Levi's. We'll yeah. call it even. It And it's, wow, it's a beastly pedal, man. It's really, really cool. That's a great story. Yeah. I uh, wanted that pedal for, <laughs> you know. Well, so, I mean, us being guys who love to, to sell gear to people, what, yeah. what, is, what is gear less? Does it ever end? You go, okay, you know that end of the scene in The Jerk where he goes, I don't need anything else. I got this, and it's all I need. And we joke around about that every day here. I go, I need this, and that's all. I, and, you know, and it keeps going. Does, have yeah. you hit the wall? You're like, I got it all. but No, I haven't hit the wall. I mean, there's, a few, <laughs> there's some things like I uh, – I keep, you know how on on Facebook, you know, if you ever look at anything. Oh, there are big brothers uh, following you. you. Add, yeah, so. <laughs> Greg. That's, that's Greg's job. That is, he is the guy oh, following okay. you. Follow, follow, right. He follows well, you around you, after that. Creepy, well, right? Well, back in the day, I, I bought a, I had a, a Gretsch Tennessean. Yeah. And it was cool. Yeah. It was the 60s, you know, red, dark red, just like George Harrison. But I didn't know how to make it play. It was okay. Right. But Big I beat. was used to my Les Paul Jr., which was just a beast with my AC30. You know, sure. that combination was just killing. I plugged the Gretchen. It was like, yeah, It's a different animal. Well, now I know how to make it play. Right. You know, and I, I wish I had it again. Oh, it's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I never could, I couldn't make it play, you know. Mm. It just all sounded weasley. So, <laughs> you know, I, I clicked on one. And now okay, I get all of these. Is that amazing? Yeah. It's really creepy. It's cool and, and, and creepy I at the same time. I keep seeing it. I'm like, oh, if I just buy it, it'll stop. You know? We'll it never get them stops. to buy one day. <laughs> yeah. We're going to tell you a little something about 12 pay when we get off the uh, uh, Okay. Off the yeah. I don't think you ever stop, though. I mean, like, uh, I, I was at Brad Paisley's house the other day, and he's, oh, plug into this amp, plug into this amp. We're plug, trying all these different amps. And one thing that was really cool you know, he, he, he loved the Helicasters too, uh, as well as the Desert Rose Band. And he goes into his recording amp room and there's various. Walls. Yeah, there's a lot of, he's got a lot of nice amps. And he says, plug into this one. And I looked at the amp and I went, no, you don't. Because he, he thought he was showing me something new. 
Well, one of my favorite amps that I ever had was a, a Vox AC15. Right. From 1963. Oh, that's an old one. Single 12, 15 watts. Light it up. Pentode tube in the preamp. So it's very like girthy, fat, great sound. And he's, I said, oh, I, I had one of those. I loved it. And Mark Sampson asked, asked me to borrow it because he was providing amps to Brian Adams in the studio. And they wanted an AC-15, and he didn't have one. Mm. So, sure, yeah, they can they can borrow it. Never got it back. They wouldn't give it back. You're kidding. They would. He said, Brian Adams said, I'm not giving it back. I'll pay you whatever you want, but I'm not giving it back. Was there a number that made that acceptable to you, or did you just want the amp back? Oh, I wasn't dealing with him. He was oh. talking to Mark. Oh, I'm okay. like, Mark, no, I want it back. Right, he said, yeah. I can't. He won't, you know. He said, I'll, I'll get you another one. You know, I'll replace it. Yet another thing to blame on Canada. Well, he he did replace it, but it wasn't was, the one. No, no it wasn't. It, 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 it was the mojo. That no, yeah. I, and I, I, you know, I didn't know that at the time. But, but so so this amp that he had had that exact same oh, thing, and he he plugs a telly into it, and he plays the opening riff of Highlander Boogie. Yeah, and I went, did you know that that's the? He said, no, I didn't. That's the amp that I recorded that on. Oh, wow. You think he was pulling your leg? You think he didn't know? <laughs> no, because I, I, I had never told him. It wasn't him. documented. Pretty yet. random. No, nobody, you know, everyone thinks if I'm always going to be either playing an AC-30 or a matchless, or, you know. Right. But that, for a while, I really liked that amp, but then it was gone. You know what's funny? You know? That amp is all over ABBA records. Maybe that's I'll what bet it, is. it is. I'll bet it is. Yeah. That's the it key. It comes back to Abba. It really does. We were talking about the other day. There's these guys on YouTube. We won't mention who they were, but they're playing. They're always demo through. Yeah, I was just thinking about an that. AC10 Super Reverb Twin. Okay. 10 watt amp. Yep. Really esoteric. I think they made like nine of them. I think every, sounds incredible. Every time they demo the guitar, I'm like, that's the one. That's the amp. And I have yeah. a lot of nice amps. I'm like, I have to find one. So, of course, I look on Reverb and. There's yeah. $7,000 for, you know, a 10-watt yeah. amp. And like, well, I can make that, right? But there's something about it. I mean, there's there's some sort of magic in there. It probably has ELAC speakers. I think are... it did. Yeah, well, this was a head. And they even when they they played it through five different oh, cabinets, did, they do a 112, they do two. Oh, yeah. okay. And I'm like, that sounds good through everything. Yeah. yeah. It's unbelievable. Well, that's going to be very, very similar to the AC-15. Yeah. I think, they, I think they actually just sort of padded it down to have a little bit less watts. Probably. But it was the same kind of... Preamp, I Everything think. just it just sort of sings. Yeah, yeah. I I know I know that sound. It's a very very nice sound. But no, uh, I, I took me a minute to get that out of my head the other day. It's such a killer sounding. And you think after all these years of lusting after stuff and getting, thankfully, we're in the business where we get to try a lot of great stuff. Yeah. You think you can weed out what what you want and you'll get it and, you, and you've got it and it's in your quiver and you go okay that's it I don't need anything else and you go what the hell is that what's he playing yeah, but then that's you, a PV bandit yeah you hear some other tone or or well plus also we're humans right yeah we change all the time you know your your taste change and what you think is cool changes and and then curiosity is our first emotion too that yeah from oh, infancy yeah I guess that's what keeps us so that is kind of what keeps you going I mean it is it keeps you from phoning it in because you go hey who did that how did they do that what does someone think of my playing now versus someone who's seen me fifteen times over the last thirty years yeah am I getting better at it I yeah. think I am oh well, I hope yeah yeah I mean you know I told. I told Brad, I said, wow, you, you just kind of reminded me why I like vintage AC30 so much. Because I, I hadn't been playing through them. You'd gotten away from it? 
Kinda. I mean, I, I just don't. Actually, when I tour in Europe, I do I play a, a 60s AC30, you know, for my main. Oh, you drag electric. that with you? Um, it lives over there. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's, it's that's my a risky... same friend that had the Superfuzz. It's yeah. got the right. Yeah. It's, so it's got the right power and everything. Yeah. It's, what a difference. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It just sounds incredible. But I don't get to do that that often, you know, mm-hmm. and not play about 10 or 11 of them. Mm-hmm. They're, they're all, all they're different. really great shape, mm-hmm. you know, and it, they're really killer and they have the right speakers and, you know, you know, it's uh, just a little bit of gear lust in his voice. There. I hear it. There's a little <laughs> yeah. twinkle there. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. So the question is, is, did he let you take it home or what did you know? Oh, he, well, he, he was giving me a guitar already. So like, well, I, I'm I, at it. You I, know? Was, I wasn't going to be greedy. Uh, you know? That's fair enough. Instead he of was a guitar. Showing... Can I take the amp? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. What he was—he was most proud of this red, original red covered AC30. That's gonna which be rare. Oh, yeah. super rare. Yeah. Definitely, it must have been done for a band who everything was red. Right, and they're you know. Well, didn't some of the shops over there too? Sometimes they'd custom order like you know, a run of like ten AC30 or something like in fawn versus you know. I mean, who the hell knows? So I, many in back in those days. I don't. I don't no? think so. I mean, mm. I think. You know, you might get, if you were had some kind of in with Vox and your band was doing kind of good, mm-hmm. you know, then you could maybe get them to do red. Right, and they'd make three. Three amps, yeah, yeah. yeah. four amps. Uh, no kidding. Yeah, because yeah. you wouldn't want some other band to have your same color amp. Of course not, and the, and the red one obviously sounds better. Well, <laughs> I think it was, they were trying to go for the Fiesta Red, you know, to match the Hank, Hank Marvin, Marvin Strat, because yeah. everybody wanted that Strat. Yeah, yeah. I still do. And some of us still do. I was yeah, just about to say. exactly. Some of us still do. I and you know, know, it was an accident for them to have that guitar. No. It was, they didn't choose that. You know, Hank, Hank Marvin and Bruce Welsh were huge fans of James Burton. Right. So they knew he was an American and he played a red Fender. Right? Mm-hmm. And they just assumed it would be the top of the line because it was James Burton. And he's right. playing with Ricky Nelson, you know? So... Cliff Richard came over to America on his own, you know, trying to get some stuff going and no one was really interested. And they said, okay, when you're over there, bring us back a red top of the line fender. You got it. So he comes back with a Fiesta red Strat with gold parts, top of the line. Yeah. Yeah. They look at it. It was like, that's not like what James Burton plays. So they didn't even know the name of the model. They just assumed, no, yeah, just get me a because, Fender. Because Fender, they, they weren't available in the UK. Right. There was a trade embargo. Right, right. So, but they just assumed, well, he's going to be playing the top of the line. Aren't we glad so they So they that, got yeah. that Strat and went like, what do we do with this? What's this thing? You know? It's only going to be about 90% of your, your Hank, sound now. Yeah, yeah. Hank, he, he did an awesome thing with it. Absolutely. You know? But it was an accident. <laughs> you can't play Sleepwalk that? on a telly. It's hard to do. But yeah. You, you know, the way yes. he does it anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Wow, that's pretty cool. How about how about a little bit of Elton John talk? Sure. Um, what were your years I have to with say him? I'm, I'm I'm wearing this. What this E Star is? This is oh, El- that's Elton John swag sweatshirt. Oh wow, nice shameless <laughs> plug there. Yeah, Elton needs the help though, so it's oh, good. You got the yeah. word out. Okay, he just has a book coming out. You right. Know, yeah. His movie came out. Or, um, well, he first saw me at a gig with the Desert Rose Band at the Roxy in Hollywood. And uh, it was kind of a big deal. We were it, we were kind of premiering our second album, and in the audience was Lyle Lovett. Well, Lyle Lyle was the opening act, and uh, in the audience was Stephen Stills, 
Bruce Hornsby, wow. um, Bernie Toppin, Dave Edmonds, Nicolette Larson, uh, Rose Maddox. Where do the normal people sit? Yeah. <laughs> Is this all <laughs> my parents? <laughs> nice. <laughs> there you go. And and Elton, you know. And because uh, Chris Hillman, who was the lead singer, his wife Connie worked for Elton's manager, John Reed. And so the, Elton is into all kind of music. That's and the thing, you know, he's a he, lover of all. Oh yeah, my God. He's crazy. A, yeah. And he, re, he retains everything. And so he really liked our first album and he gave us quotes to use from it and everything. So he was in yes, town, sir. he was going to come to the gig. That's great. And I met him briefly before the gig and you know, it's, it's cool. It's Elton John. The, the, then I was more just, you know, doing the gig and I wanted to Business. go good and l- yeah. let's, let's, let's kick kill ass. It. Well, yeah, yeah there's right. all these people in the, well, yeah, sure. wow. that, that ups your game every yeah. time. Yeah. Oh, so I would end our set with this long solo that kind of ended up becoming my section of, uh, orange blossom special. Okay. Helicasters. But mm-hmm. it, that was originally an, an intro for another song called price I pay. So I did that whole thing and it's kind of flashy. And you know, that was our ending song and people went crazy. Sure. And then, we were in the dressing room upstairs and he burst through the door and just grabbed my hand. Brilliant guitar, fucking brilliant. <laughs> Everything wow. sounds better with an English accent, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, wow, you're Elton John, thank you. you know, so um, then I was invited to go see his show. And at that show, I met Davy Johnston. Great player. Who I, I'd been a fan of. Same. And he's a super cool guy, yeah. you know, and we kind of hit it off and became guitar buddies. and. Then, you know, I would, if we were end up at the same place on the road, we'd go out to lunch, always at his hotel, because it was much nicer than my hotel. <laughs> but, uh, and then in, um, I, and Elton would ask me like, oh, how's it going? How's the music and everything? Like, I could tell that I was like in his brain somehow, you okay. know? On the radar. Yeah. 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 And I thought, I'm a, and at that time I was starting to do a lot of recording, you know, sessions and stuff. And, um, like I played on Bonnie Raitt's Nick of Time album. Wow. And that, d- that moved a few units. Yeah. That was, that was what really, an album. That was so cool. I, I was a big fan of her. So I was, that was she's the happy best. To, happy to play on that. And yeah. Don was, it was kind of his breakout as a producer. Mm. Right. So he was going to produce some extra sides for a box set of Elton. So I thought, okay, here's how this has come around. You know, Don will ask me to play on this stuff for Elton. And I actually did get the call for it, hmm. but it never happened for whatever reason. Hmm. So in those days, we didn't have cell phones. Um, Davey moved. I didn't have his new number. Um, this thing never happened with Elton. So I just kind of like, eh, okay, well, it's, you know, just forgot. This is usual. Yeah, just with whatever. You can just move on, you know. And then it was six years later, my phone rang out of the blue. You know, and it. <laughs> Hello, John. It's Elton. <laughs> uh, Elton, who? <laughs> and, and, and I, I, you know, I could recognize his voice. I said, are, are, "Are you on a plane or something?" He says, "No, dear. Just in the car, coming back from studio. Dear. And we've been working on an album. It's the best shit I've done in years. It's all Django." Davey and I were talking about it, and we'd like to add a guitarist to the band who could do a lot of harmony vocals, and you were the first person we thought of. Like, wow. Really? <laughs> yes. I said, well, what are you asking me to do? 18-month world tour. Like, 18 months? <laughs> wow. That's a long time. I said, uh, can, can we have a meeting or something? And, you know, 
yes, dear, come to the Four Seasons at one o'clock lunch on Sunday. Wow. I said, okay. I said, you'll have to ask for Binky Poodle Clip. Uh. I said, um, let me just write that down. <laughs> he says, yes, dear, it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> so all that documentary about Elton is true where he's... He's oh, as difficult as it gets when he doesn't get what he wants, or is it? Uh, um, you know what? I never saw him act up when there was not a reason for it. Okay, fair enough. If somebody's fucking with him or lying to him mm. or saying, "Yes, these are your monitors," when he knows they're not, mm. you know, it, it or somebody lies about him in the press, or you know, or or attacks his family, or mm-hmm. you know, yeah, uh, knives are out at that point. Yeah, yeah, uh, but I'd never seen him. You know, he got frustrated sometimes in the studio, but like everyone does that. Sure. You know, if you're not playing or singing or writing the way you want, you know, that's everyone does that. But I, no, I, I never saw him get pissy for no reason. Now, how do you know. you know what to bring for that gig? I mean, you've obviously had your own sound. He knew you had your own style. When you come to the gig, you go, okay, this is my gear. Is it going to fit in with everything else, or do they dictate? Or no, they 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 didn't dictate. Um, that first tour. Um, that, you know, I, I actually waited a week before I agreed to do it after the meeting because Mm. I was so happy with my life at that time. Mm. The Helicasters album had just come out and we won awards and we were getting ready to do a second one. Um, I was doing a, a, I had my own night at the Palomino where I could have whatever bands I wanted and I'd play, you know, my own band, usually more like rock or in stuff. I was doing movie things, television things, award shows, flying back and forth to Nashville to do sessions. It was like every day was something different. Mm. And I loved my life. And I didn't want to be a sideman for someone else. So I, I had turned down auditions for Bruce Springsteen, for Bob Dylan. I turned down tour offers with Mary Chapin Carpenter, Lyle Lovett, Carlene Carter, Winona Judd, a lot of people. Because I... I really didn't want to be a sideman. You know, I, I was going to be the artist. So this begs the question. Why? Yeah. Well, so I went to this meeting and I had to, there was a beautiful concierge at this hotel and I had to ask her, I told her I was there to see Binky Poodle Clip. <laughs> <laughs> she did not flinch. She didn't smile. She just like, yes, that'll be the 24th floor of this room number, such and such. So I went up there and, and I said, look, you know, I've got this uh, second album coming out soon with the Helicasters and this and going on, this going on. And I said, could I still maintain these other things? And his manager's like, no, it's going to be quite busy. And Elton says, yeah, it sounds like you're too busy for this gig, but let me play you my new album. So, of course, he had a killer stereo system, you know, like giant Yamaha speakers and, you know, fantastic, like the best turntable and, vinyl you know and so the first song that came on and and i'd been hearing his albums up to then because connie hillman would always get a a demo you know or advanced copy or you know of the albums and yeah they were you know they were okay but i didn't love them you know it wasn't like goodbye all road or something you know so first song comes on He's got Paul Buckmaster strings. It's recorded in Air Studios in London. Everything. It sounds beatly, yeah. classic British pop that I really like. The song's Believe. Great. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, this is really good, but it's probably the only good song on the album. You know, next song is called Made in England. 
which starts out with a hard day's night chord right. and just this killer, great guitar riffs and so he melodic. Knew he, he, he believed that if you had heard it, he, he had you. That was the hook? Maybe. Because mm. as it went through, like each song, I liked the, you know, I liked the whole thing. Mm. And as I was leaving with Davey, and I, and I liked Davey too. I knew if I was like around the world, he'd be a cool person to hang with. And I thought, you know, I'm in the music business. If I can't do it just because I like the music, then what am I doing here? So, but I also knew that if I left all those things, they wouldn't be there when I got back. They kind of dry up, huh? Well, they get someone else. Right. You know, they move on. They still have to do their work. Sure. You know, so, uh, and you know, like like life doesn't ever wait for you. (laughs) It moves on. So it took me a while, like, you know, a couple of days went by and he said, he, he wants to know why, why don't you want to play with him? I said, it's, it's not that I'm, I'm thrilled, but I just have to make sure, you know, and then a couple of days later, you know, f- like after four or five days, Davey called and said, look, if, if you don't want to do this, I need to get somebody else for the gig. I'm like, nobody else is getting this gig. Yeah, right. It's mine. <laughs> so you felt that you would have kicked yourself after the fact it was, I, well, when, when I felt that reaction, I went, oh, I really yeah, I, I really do want it. Yeah, I don't know if I want to do it, but I don't know if I want anybody else to exactly, do it. Exactly. Well, at the same yeah. time, it raises your stock because Elton John's like, is this guy going to say yes? It's like, well, he's thinking about it. It's like, what do you mean he's thinking about it? Anyone else would have jumped at it immediately. I know, but I, I wasn't playing it for that reason. I just you know, I just knew that it was well, going to be a, a big change. had a lot of other change. stuff on the Yeah, right. it was going to be a big change and... And so then like it said, was like all that stuff gets filled in while you're gone. Yeah, and it did. It would, nothing was ever the same like that. And and like I say, that was one of my favorite time periods of my life. So, you know, but I had that. So, but when it came time for choosing gear, I thought I need some big amps, you know. Mm. And at the time, Mark Sampson was just getting matchless off the ground, and I was playing a lot of his amps, and so I ordered. Two super chief heads, which were like his hundred oh, overkill, yeah, yeah, and two four by twelve cabinets, one open back and one closed back. Sure, why not? I like what you think. <laughs> I had, and I had a Leslie, a real Leslie. Oh my god, you were but, traveling with a real Leslie, but it was covered like a matchless, so it matched. But didn't it weigh a ton? It was in two pieces, but I didn't have to move yeah. anything. Well, of course not. <laughs> there's, there's people. Yeah. I, I don't know if his travel I was, would. Yeah. No, I was very, I was like, it's so, you get so spoiled. You know? No kidding. You yeah. have anything you want, any instruments you want. Um, and I played pedal steel as well, mandolin, acoustics in different tunings, baritone guitars, regular there's guitars. So much stuff all over those albums. Some, yeah. you know, like Davey would double parts a lot. Mm-hmm. So I would we, we would play unison, you know, and I would want to match the guitar he was playing. So we had a lot of, a lot of that going on. A lot of and, layering. Yeah. And like on bitches back, I wanted to play the sax solo, but I didn't want to not play the cool guitar parts too. So I had the sax on a stand and I could just walk up to it and play the solo. And so having somebody to set all that stuff up for mm, me, yeah. I, I had a guy named Fergie who was from Australia who had toured with ACDC in a van around Australia. <laughs> this is a step up. Yeah, so yeah. he was like, you know, he knew the he was shit. Good. He, was he was good to go. He was amazing. Yeah. He was really great. Yeah, if that doesn't stop you. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty wild. So, yeah. So that's a, that's how I chose them for what I needed for the songs, you know, mm-hmm. and probably the amps were kind of overkill, 
because the next tour I used, um, by that time I had signature matchless combo amps, which was a single uh, single 1230 watt. Uh, great amp. My good, favorite. Good luck finding them. Yeah. They're a badass. We, we had a yeah. bunch of those. A bunch? Well, yeah, there were a bunch of them in one of the stories. They didn't to work make with. very many. I had them all, I think. Yeah, I <laughs> and bet they were you overpriced. Did. They were very ex- well. Very when I when I asked for all the features, you know, Mark Sampson said, "That's going to be so expensive. The list price is going to be too high." I said, Not for me. I said, "Well, I don't care. You know, that's <laughs> what I want. This is what I want. You're putting and, my name on it." And then th- we announced it at, at Nam that year, and he was he was like. People are ordering it. They don't care what the cost is, and so I used I used two of those, and, and actually I could hear myself better moving with, a lot of with, area. With, well, instead of the four, you know, were they thirty or fifty watts? What were they? Thirty. They're thirty yeah. watts. Yeah. And 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 Davey used two of them too. Oh no kidding! So it looked really cool. Oh to nice. Have four. That's a high compliment. Yeah. Yeah, that was really nice. That was a great amp. Yeah. Really sure. versatile. Yeah, so kick-ass, really loud. Do you still get to use it at all? Are you using the studio, or is it... Uh, well, uh, I, I have... The first one I ever got um, was sent to, to London for me to record with. The first time I recorded with Elton um, in a Townhouse Studio, the Pretenders were next door. Oh, yeah. So that was pretty cool. Very cool. Hanging with Chrissy Hines. Nice. Um, so that amp is still in Scotland, and I just used it on the tour I did over there. Great. Um, then the two that I used with Elton, they were in the flood in Nashville in 2010. Oh. They still work. They still work. Um, but I don't get to use them that often. Well, do you baby them at that point? When some when you go through something traumatic like that, are you almost afraid to? I I think they'd be fine. I mean, one of my favorite AC30s, well, all, all, all my vintage stuff, amps were all in my basement that got mm, flooded geez. um my first ac30 my kind of my favorite one uh it it worked the speakers worked you know i dried them face down mm-hmm. some of the other ones i left on the baffle boards and they oh, did good they Fair did as well yeah. yeah they didn't but um the, this one the amp worked and i was using it in a session then all of a sudden middle of session it just stopped and i couldn't and this was months later you know, and I couldn't figure it out. I, t- I took it to Mark Sampson. I said, well, why would, why would that happen? You know, so the, the transformer's gone. He said, well, it's very possible that just a little bit of moisture was still in there and it just slowly corroded enough to mm-hmm. break, you yeah. know, that wind yep, at that yeah. place. Like, okay. That makes sense. So I kind of, I don't fully trust the, you know, the ones that were underwater. Yeah. You know, there was mold in the reverb tanks and all this. And you didn't want that? I learned. <laughs> this doesn't add yeah. to the tone? <laughs> I learned key, so much about, you know, some of the guitars, like with a thick finish like that, the wood would just oh, break yeah. the finish. But then some, when they dried, it, it would close back up. And you can see a crack, but, but you don't really notice it's it. It's a from battle ways scar away. at that point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. the stuff really got soaked. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, yeah. I couldn't see it for a week. And then my amps and stuff were still in cases for another week. Oh, boy. So, it's like a yeah. petri dish, yeah. Yeah. So some stuff didn't fare well at all. Some stuff just had to be thrown away. But a lot of stuff was able to be That's what insurance fixed. is for, I guess, huh? 
I was I was one of the lucky ones that yeah, had insurance. Not a lot of, guys did, not yeah. a lot of people did, and the vi- and the storage place didn't mm-hmm. either. So I was very lucky. They let me keep stuff. You know, the it, it was heartbreaking to throw stuff away, but some stuff just had to be. You know, well, and that's a, a mentality cases. a lot of people don't get. They go, "Well, just get yourself a fresh new one." And a guitar players go, "Why would I yeah. do that?" You yeah, know, oh, this I is take, what you're working you know, for. Yeah, my my first good, really good guitar was a, a SG Les Paul from 1961 and I bought it when I was 16 for $275, which was the list price when it was new. And I bought it on time. My mom co-signed (laughs) $27.50 a month. And I thought at 10 months I was done. She's like, no, you got to pay it out there. But that's, but it was 200. So so I learned about that. You you learned about interest at that point. And I'd gone into this, this shop in, in San Bernardino, California, um, called Braveroff's Music, and it's where my dad would buy a lot of band instruments and stuff like that. And they were, you know, in those days, you couldn't be dealer of everything, you know. Mm-hmm. There was another place that was the Fender dealer. This place had, was a Vox dealer and a Gibson dealer. So I went in there, and I think I had just seen Jake Giles band, and I'm thinking, I, I need a Les Paul. A 59, yeah. yeah. I didn't know about years. I was just like, Sunburst, right? A lot of guys that I see are playing a Les Paul. Sure. I, I, I think I need that. You know? So I'm going there, I look around, and I see this SG. Which, of course, okay, Carlos Santana played that. Pete Townsend played that. It says Les Paul on it. And yeah. it says Les Paul on it. <laughs> right. I'm like, this is cool. This is like killing two birds with one stone, you know? So I, I asked the guy about it, you know, and he, he knew me from my dad and everything. And I said, yeah, I want to get it. So I got the loan and everything. And, and, Someone had just, the original owner had just brought it back. You know, hmm. this was in like 72 or something. And the original guy who bought it from their store brought it back and I don't know, traded it in or whatever. And it was in one of those uh, brown crocodile thin, you know, cardboard cases, right? And so the, the, the guy at the store said, hey, you know what? This, I think when this was new, it came with a better case. Let's go in the back and see if we can find it. No way. So we go back there. He pulls out this beautiful case, yellow mm. inside, hang tags. Oh, no. Your new humbucking pickups, your <sighs> tunematic bridge, blah, blah, blah. And you look in the top of it, and, you know, that guitar had the sideways vibrato. Right. It has a, a V in the tailpiece. Sure. Mm-hmm. So uh, you look in the lid of the case, there's that, you know. So... This All was the original case candy, yeah. Brand new case from 1961. Holy cow. Like the, so what I was that so, fetch? Yeah. so proud of that. Sure. Well, in the flood. Oh, no. The, there's killing no me. way. I mean, it just... Yeah, yeah. It just, you know, completely came apart, and I, I haven't been able to replace it. You know, I, I found another one, but it I think you're missing sort of has right? a mold thing in it, you know? Mold yeah, mold is, 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 yeah, that's a tough one to get away from. For yeah. three, a couple days open, and for brief, my SG smelled like so bad from the being, cl- it was, I have an under the bed clean 73 SG. Nice. That I, and I, but the thing stunk to high oh. heaven because it had that. The nitro finish closed in a case. Gas, oh yeah. yes, yeah. So <laughs> I left the case, I hung that. the guitar up and I left the case out for three days. I just go in there and spray it two or three times a day with Febreze, and eventually, did it work? It worked. Two cases later. See that that with mold that doesn't. 
Yeah, and mold is, is, some, is like it a living organism. Yeah, yeah. mold is, and it's just nasty. like whatever you do to it, it says bleach. I'm sorry, yeah. coming back. Yeah, yeah, bleach, yep. bleach coming bleach. back, dude. So <laughs> yeah, that's too bad though. That's a bummer. Covered a lot. What's next? What's what's coming up for you? What are you doing? Oh wow! Well, the holiday season, which is usually kind of tame for me this year, it's it's very busy. Mm. Um, Podcasts. Yeah, lots of pod- <laughs> holiday podcasts. <laughs> um, Cue the music. Well, the next couple of weekends, I'm playing with my Gypsy Jazz Quintet. Next weekend in Georgia, the following weekend in Montana. Um, oh, and nice then, routing. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, the different weekends. But um, then the Thanksgiving night, I fly up to Quebec City, and I'm going to play a big Christmas extravaganza with a group that I produce up there called the Lost Fingers. And... Uh, they they also have set up a, a master class up there hmm. where they're going to put every instrument that I know how to play on, on a stage. And go, play that. Yes, kind of. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. You do a little woodshed before you go up there to see if you a haven't played of one of those in a while. Yeah. Pedal steel, bassoon, that might be rough. Yeah. Oh, double reeds up there, though. I mean, yeah, beautiful. It'll, yeah. It'll be, it'll be interesting. Um, and then when I come back down... Um, I've got a sort of like a, a corporate show I, I do every year. Um, and, and it started with Larry Hoppin. Um, but now his, his brothers, Lance and Lane Hoppin and Charlie Morgan, who played drums with, right. with Elton, uh, Barry Dunaway, who plays bass with 38 special and Jerry Riggs, who also plays guitar with 38 special. We all will we'll back up a, a bunch of different artists. Sounds and like I, a great band. It's pretty fun. You know, we've backed up Billy Ocean and Joe Elliott and what's well, all, all you diverse. know Lou Graham and the, the Temptations. But all you get different. to play all these great songs you heard growing up, and you're oh. like, yeah, we're killing oh, it. Oh, you know? it's yeah. fantastic! Three Dog Night, or you know, and then they'll have different eras too. They have like the guy from Smash Mouth or the guy from, you know, uh, what do you wear for a gig like that? You know, how you cover? You just different. try to look rock. Yeah, you try not to t-shirt look and old. jeans. Black always works. <laughs> black t-shirt, black jeans, yeah. <laughs> some sort of mask. So we've got a couple of holiday shows, and then I, I have a holiday show that I do with Maria Moldauer. Oh, she's great. And we do, um, she's curated a bunch of cool, old, like, swing Christmas songs. Oh, fun. From Memphis Minnie and from Louis Armstrong and stuff like that. So we'll do Christmas time in Harlem. and Nice. It's, it's really fun. So it's a, uh, we have a trio, myself and, and bass player and drummer from my quintet, and Maria. So we'll do a handful of those shows this year. I watched yeah. a few videos of your quintet smoking. It's off the, the charts, players, right? Players I mean, incredible. Uh, I have got the best players in that. They're every it's, position. It's, it's clear just, that you like them too. Everybody, it's oh yeah. You, you definitely project that to the audience. So that's your audience connection part. Is yeah, you dig them as much as they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's some that's something I kind of stole from Leonard Cohen too. He he, he was very good at. You know, helping the audience, you know, pay attention to what was awesome on stage. Right. You know? So so that's all coming up to, um, you know, until Christmas, really. It's, well, it's a lot of shows. And mm-hmm. and why don't we uh, talk about why we're actually here and how we why we have you here, the Guitarist Series. Yeah. And uh, something we're rolling out together. We're happy to partner up with you on that. Um, how did that come about? Wow, it's it's really it's it's been sort of a circuitous That's route. A big word. Um, I met I met Steve Swanson 
in uh, it's been a few couple of years ago now in Colorado. Um, he was doing a, a, a radio show in Colorado, and he got interested in gypsy jazz and got interested in Django Reinhardt and then got interested in me and wanted to do a, a radio show kind of about that. And then it kind of morphed into a interview on camera, and then it was going to be possibly a documentary about Django, and then it was going to be a documentary about me, and then we started filming a, with a lot of my friends, um, Ricky Skaggs and Sam Bush and Joe Bonamassa, Brad Paisley, Peter Frampton, um, Tommy Emanuel, and then it it kind of it became a clear that there was more than uh that there was just a lot of cool stuff that could be covered and it would probably be better in an episodic kind of fashion and um so that's kind of how it's gotten to where it is now and we've got we've done a lot already and and, and there's so many more things we can do like stuff happens all the time that's that a good I, friends to have to talk about you there yeah and it, does it embarrass you uh the, the only one that really embarrassed me was brad paisley he was like well, he gushes about you i saw that we yeah, were watching the trailer yeah uh, it's amazing but it's you know it's, it's yeah like, it's a little bit like ah. <laughs> that's awesome though yeah it's amazing and 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 i love to brag on my friends and you know it's it's really fun because we're just doing what we do what we're doing right now you know we talk about guitars and music and what's interesting to us and what's challenging. And um, so I think there's going to be a lot of things for a lot of people. And I think there are a lot for guitar nerds for sure and gearheads, but I think even sometimes maybe their girlfriends and wives might <laughs> like stuff gonna, too. My wife's you know? going to sit through it because I'm going to tell her about this whole thing. You're so going to make her, right? Kind of, <laughs> kind of in the nicest way I possibly can. Dinner first. Like, they mentioned Elton John. Yeah. yeah. Everybody loves had, Elton. She's, yeah. She's got and, the big vinyl box set, Elton And John. Charlie's Theron and, you know. <laughs> it's something yeah. for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So we, you tell me a little bit about it from your your standpoint I, i'm curious yeah so when we got an email one day from steve and telling us about the episode uh, the series or the potential of a series and mentioned your name um i knew exactly who you were i've you know listened to you for years and uh normally where those things kind of get filed into you know let's look at that when we have more of an opportunity being that you're the player's player and people like brad paisley idolize you and all the people that uh, the kids nowadays are listening to and all those players are the ones that are saying you're the real deal. So it's, we want to partner with the, the real deal and that's you. And we're, uh, we're ecstatic to be a uh, part of this series. Wow. Thank you so much. I mean, it's uh, just being here today and kind of just being introduced really to the, to the whole organization and the aesthetic and, and the way that it's, it's run is and and the tradition too it's really cool because it's like it, it's kind of like how my life has been too in a way you know because it started with like a mom and pop music store you know that's where i started you know mm -hmm. same thing and it and things have developed in in ways that people could have never imagined i, I think you know 
Not that none of it yourself. existed. Yeah. The, yeah. The tech, nothing existed like this. No. You know, the, no, but no it, internet. But it, at, the, at the bottom of it, it, it comes from the same thing. It's like people love music. They love to share music. They love to get together and play. They love to talk about it. Yeah. And, and, and they need to be served, you know, with, with instruments and, and technology and, and gear and stuff so that they can do that. We try to make it as easy as possible for them to have it too. Well, and we also understand, I mean, I think when people look at what they call a big box retailer and things like that, they assume it's a bunch of people in suits with spreadsheets. And there's a certain element to that. At the heart of it all is we love this stuff. We love the gear. We love talking to people like you. It's exciting and it never gets old. And we're lucky to do it. And yeah. I think I think that comes through at the, at the end result. Anyone who buys something from us realizes these people actually really like what they do. Yeah. And, and that I, and that comes through with you being on stage. It comes through with anybody who likes what they do. You know it. Yeah. Yeah. You can feel it. Yep. And, 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 and the thing is that, I mean, I, I try to always remember that too, is like everybody that I come in contact with in music and, and in performing, you know, sound guys, lighting guys, uh, agents, you know, pretty much everybody started by learning an instrument. Right. And getting in a band. Because mm -hmm. you don't just start being an agent or start being a sound guy. You well, know, some people do. There, well, it's rare that there's <laughs> that. There's an, that's an entry point. You know, mm -hmm. and so the thing that we all have in common is just that something that we heard or somebody we saw do something. Just you know, it made your skin do that thing, and you want to do it. And so it's like this big family that has this speaks this same language. You know? There's definitely something. There's some weird hook to it. Yeah, I think for sure. I was like in kindergarten. The first time I saw a drum set, and I looked at it, and went, "Wow, <laughs> what is that?" It was bands that was set up in our church basement. I'm like, "What goes on there?" Well, you can always tell this. There's people that get it, and I, I was struck by something Tom Petty said before he passed away. And he said, "I've seen a lot of things. I've done a lot of stuff, but to me, the closest thing to actual magic is music. When you think about what it does and and where it comes out of nowhere." And it, what it does for your brain that, that school doesn't or sports doesn't. I mean, it's just, you can't get enough of it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's, oh, wow, that you would bring up Tom because, you know, just had his, like, a birthday celebration show that I, I went to last week in Los Angeles. And actually, the couple of the best performers, one was a friend of mine, Hattie Webb, one of the Webb sisters, mm -hmm. and she sang a duet with Chris Scruggs. Okay. I mean, I'm not, not Chris Scruggs, sorry, Chris Stills. Oh, yeah. Steven Stills' son. Okay. And he was phenomenal. Killed it. Yes. Did he sound like his pop? No. He just sounded incredible. You know, it, it, it didn't sound like a, like he was you know, trying right. to be anything. No. Yeah. He was just a powerful guitar player, a powerful singer, a powerful performer. They sang "Stop Dragging My Heart Around." Yeah, and it was magic. It, it was. Yeah. It was. It was just like, poof. and you know, Tom. The the last musical project he did, I worked on. Oh no, kidding! It was a, an album that he co-produced with Herb Peterson for Chris Hillman as an artist, and wow. yeah. and I played quite a bit on that. And you know, Tom knew that I was a Beatle geek and and a Birds geek, and, and yeah. he showed me this book. You know, that was it, it's a it's a Beatles session book where they show everything, the way everything's placed sure. and all that kind of stuff. And it's not one, it's like, it's not one that you can easily get, right? And we're all about it, you know, just like it. And the other guys in the studio are like, 
okay, you guys, come on, we <laughs> need to turn get the to lights off and yeah. stuff. And I thought, okay, you know, there, there's going to be a time where we're going to sit down and just geek out over this stuff. You know, I really thought that. Mm. And then, yeah, you know, of course that, that wasn't to, to be, but you know, think of all the great stuff he left behind. No, I mean, oh man. Unbelievable. I, just, I so, I sure appreciate him and you know what he did. He, and I think part of his appeal was because he was like, everybody knows a guy like that, mm. you know, their sister's boyfriend that's in a band or your cousin or, mm. you know, it, he was just like a regular guy. Right. And he was a fan. Know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you could always appreciate that about him. It seemed like he wasn't above it. No, not at all. He sure knew how to put a band together, though. Yeah. Oh, she's. They might tour. They might do a a Heartbreakers tour. This is what I hear. I'm hoping. Uh, With some guest singers and whatnot. Uh, Maybe I'm telling you something you already know. But I mean, to me, the thought of that is like, I mean, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, I kind of like it. And I kind of like, uh, because I just saw this show where all these people were singing his songs and. They, they they did good. They weren't you know? Tom. I mean, they they weren't him. Yeah. Also, I missed Mike though. Mike wasn't he wasn't part of it. Uh, I cannot and, get enough Mike Campbell. And he's you know. the one putting it together. So I think there's it'll there'll be oh, okay. a, a yeah. solid. It would level. be him okay. and Benmont and good. Yeah, yeah, yeah all because the guys. that's I was like you can't do like a hard really thing without him. I won't yeah. say who the guitarist was. He's someone you know. Okay. And I mean, just like blues licks. Random blues licks. Yeah, what Mike Cavill does is like no, he does melodies and parts, and if they're not there, they're just not there. Yeah. Think of Boys of Summer. You think any of those licks? It's like if it's not there, I don't care how good Don Henley is. Where's that guitar part? Oh yeah, yeah. 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 Or listen to her heart. You get yeah. that, that melody comes in. Yeah, blues licks don't cut it. Sorry. <laughs> well, we're gonna have to find out when we get off camera here who that was. Quick, yes. Google, yeah, Google. You'll know. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this first podcast. Check back for new episodes coming soon. And check out AmericanMusical.com for all your gear needs. 